Hello, Falava. You're listening to Tangata Otemoana from RNZ Pacific. I'm Susana Suisuiki. Coming up first, Tuvalu appoints a new prime minister. Also, we don't talk about these things, and as a result, we lead statistics very negatively in sexual violence, sexual assaults. A new Pacifica theatre show looks at developing healthy relationships. And later, every day, that's their lived experience living in material hardship. That's completely unacceptable. Pacifica children in New Zealand continue to live in poverty. Felixi Teo has been elected unopposed as Prime Minister of Tuvalu. Kuroi Hawkins spoke about Felixi Teo and his incoming government with California State University's Assistant Professor for Asian Pacific Studies, Jess Mirena Chu, who has previously worked with the Tuvalu government. Um, so I'm not really surprised. I think um, when Teo was elected, his name kind of jumped out at a lot of people because he has so much international experience um, and he's worked outside of Tuvalu and in Tuvalu in these very high level positions. Um, I just, however, did see that the Tuvalu news media site, they their explanation of how the, the unopposed election happened was that the only name that was put forward for um, election was for the PM was Teo's name. Um, but still, that that is a, a unanimous vote there. Um, yeah, but I think that just given all of his background, it's fairly unsurprising that he would be the one that could get a unanimous vote um, in this case. And I also had heard, I think it's been going around that there's a fairly large block of MPs who are supporting him or her in the same group uh, that he is. Now, we know a lot about Teo from his work with the Pacific Tuna Commission, but you mentioned he also did a lot of work in Tuvalu. Um, can can you speak a bit about that? What what things has he done in Tuvalu? So he he has been the the uh, Attorney General of Tuvalu, so that's a, a fairly high level position. Um, there's um another person, uh, Sir Italeli, who also was the Attorney General. So there's two former Attorney Generals there, um, and I think he just had a pretty uh, distinguished background uh, as a lawyer in Tuvalu before then going on to some of his international positions. So, I mean, fairly respectable roles both within Tuvalu and outside of Tuvalu. It looks like we're still waiting for a final list of everyone in government, but it looks like Filetti and some of the new MPs have gone with the former government. You you spoke a little bit about the the dynamics of this new Tuvalu parliament with such a field of experienced candidates. If you could speak a bit to that, please. Um, so especially the new MPs, that's where like a lot of experience is coming in. So we have two uh, former attorney generals. Uh, we have a former governor general in Sir Yakubataya Italeli. Um, Maina Talia, who was um, elected from the island of Vaitupu, is this major climate activist who also has a PhD looking at climate change and theology. Um, and we have Paulson Panapa, who's a former um, high commissioner to New Zealand for the government of Tuvalu. So people who, I mean, they even can line up well with certain ministerial positions as well, but just a lot of experience um, both within and outside of Tuvalu. So I think that's very exciting just to see all those people, it looks like going together with some of the people from the former government who also have quite a deal, a good deal of experience. Um, and I think that will help build up a really nice cabinet for the country. Now, 
you you've had extensive experience working with the government of Tuvalu, um, also translating for them in in their dealings with Taiwan. I understand. Yes. Um, uh, uh, some of the noise that's been going around leading up to this election it stemmed from Pai New saying something about looking at the relationship with Taiwan. Uh, how much weight do you put in that kind of talk? Well, I, I mean, just in looking at it, I could see it maybe not so much as being about actually looking at Taiwan or actually thinking about leaving Taiwan, but it more, I mean, to me, what I'm thinking was a strategic move. Um, if you're thinking about this election is getting a lot of press from people and saying something like that also brought more attention to it. And that actually puts the new government in a pretty good position for wanting to negotiate with different partners, not necessarily China, but Australia, the United States, Taiwan as well. Um, just to kind of have people slightly nervous about that or concerned. And you see how many people are really actively reporting on this, like people on the edge of their seat wanting to know who the prime minister is going to be for Tuvalu. Uh, so I think it actually did uh, generate quite a bit of buzz. And so I think it's really normal for the Tuvalu government, just in, in my experience, to in the first year, maybe of an administration being formed, review all foreign affairs. Um, you look at things like where missions are, where diplomatic posts are. Um, so it's not just Taiwan, but just everything to look at. Are you getting that? value added out of how you have your foreign affairs set up. So I think that that's fairly normal. Um, but I think maybe the way in which it kind of had couched um, talking about that review had made people a bit concerned about it. And so that got quite a bit of attention. The other thing grabbing a bit of attention is the obviously the Falipili Union um, signed at the forum by Natano, who's out of this parliament. What is the likelihood? Would you see there being much change to that, that agreement under a new government or uh, all some of the talks and debate around the pros and cons of it in Tuvalu as well? Well, I think there was only one in the previous government, the previous parliament, there was only one person who was really very opposed um, to the Polypili Union, that was Enele Sopoanga. Um, and just given that he is not, at least we know, in the PM seat, um, I think that Probably Falipili will stay in some form, but there was a lot of talk um, about the need to change some of the language. And given that there are a lot of lawyers um, in this parliament now, um, I think that a lot of work will be done just looking at that language more carefully, because when you do set something down in a treaty, um, it's fairly binding. Um, and so you have to really make sure that language like is in the security part of Falipili, where it's basically saying that Australia has almost veto power. Um, over Tuvalu's decisions on a whole range of security matters, that's something that may have to be adjusted. So I think that the idea of it, there, there are good parts that are in there, and I think people will value that, but just maybe some of the language um, might have to be just clarified. Uh, what exactly does this clause mean? And maybe some revisions to be made there. But I don't see it being thrown out wholesale at this point. A cabinet minister in Bougainville is calling for mining giant Rio Tinto to set concrete commitments for remediation and cleanup of the Panguna mine. Rio Tinto was the owner-operator of one of the world's largest copper and gold mines, which has lain derelict for more than 30 years. Periods of heavy rain leads to rivers being choked with mine tailings waste and reports of compromised eater supplies and food crops. Tiana Haxton spoke to Theonila Ruka Matbulb, the Minister for Community Government. Matbulb is the elected member for Ioro, the district that encompasses the Panguna mine. 
Born just a year after it was forced shut in 1989, she has been dealing with the environmental and societal impacts of the mine and civil war her entire life. After completing her university studies, Matbob decided it was time to advocate for the human rights of her people. You know, we cannot keep accepting that what we're living on, which is the tailings, is something that is normal and it's natural. I come from a tribe that completely lost the land. She worked with the Australian Human Rights Law Centre to file an official complaint, which has led to Rio Tinto funding an independent environmental and human rights impact assessment. Matbob says it's the first step in the right direction, but more needs to be done. There is still no concrete commitment to say we will remediate, we will clean up. It causes a lot of anxiety, especially when people are expecting to know what is it that the company is going to do. Over a billion tonnes of waste tailings were released directly into nearby rivers during the operation of the Panguna mine between 1972 and 1989. The human rights complaint alleged that the massive volume of mine waste pollution is ongoing, putting people's lives and livelihoods at risk. Every single day, this arable land area has been covered by the collapsing sandbags. As we speak, there are families that are continuously moving, but no one wants to talk about this as a violation against people and the environment itself. The minister says this problem was not caused by her people and Rio Tinto needs to rectify their actions. Rio Tinto coming onto the round table, making some real concrete commitments, will only heal the people. And when it heals the people, it's a win-win situation for companies' reputation and my future generation as well. Matbob has been advocating for this for almost a decade. She says she will continue to put pressure on the company to make a commitment for the betterment of the people of Bougainville. That was Tiana Haxton with that story. Meanwhile, earlier this month, the autonomous Bougainville government granted a five-year extension license to mining company Bougainville Copper Limited for its exploration of the Panguna mine. President Ishmael Tiruama said Panguna is a high-impact project for Bougainville and that issuing the license paves the way for the region's redevelopment. A Cook Islands-born playwright is generating conversations around healthy relationships and safe sex in Pacific communities with her upcoming production, Bane Provocations. Tehere Nui Koteka began scripting the play at 19 years old upon moving to New Zealand to study theatre. Six years later, the proud Cook Islander is looking forward to the show's debut next week in Wellington. Tiana Haxton reached out to Ms Koteka. Pai Provocations translates to provocations about sex in Cook Islands, Māori. Um, the play itself is really fun. It follows the entangled relationships of six Pacific youths. Um, they're, still, they're, they're still really young. And through these relationships, revelations about sexuality, self-care, religion and community are discovered. Um, it's a really fun play because all of the characters are so different from each other. And it's really fun to see how they change and what faces they wear in their various relationships and yeah i'm really excited for it it's going to be super fun and then um you know why is this an important story for you to tell um pacific islanders we still look at sex and relationships as like very taboo and um as a result we don't talk about things like we don't talk about what makes a relationship healthy we don't talk about how to care for yourself 
in those relationships, whether that be within your vairua, your spirit, um, within your mind, or whether it's physical, like physically. Um, we don't talk about these things. And as a result, we lead statistics very negatively in sexual violence, sexual assault, spousal abuse, STIs, teen pregnancy. Um, and I think if we were just being a bit more open in our discussion about it, if our youth felt more comfortable to ask questions, then we might not have those statistics. And this play is really just my way of trying to get those conversations started. You've also got Pacific Islanders acting in it. And if you want to tell us a little bit about that that scene, you know, having Pacific people being the faces of Pacific stories is always important. Yeah, for sure. Um, yes, Punny Provocations, I say, is created by Brown Youth for Brown Youth. Since its inception, not only with me being the writer, but um, as I've been workshopping it throughout the last five or so years, I've always had Pacific writers, um, Pacific actors, Pacific dramaturgs in the room with me to kind of ensure, I guess, that the story that we're putting out there is authentic to the Pacific experience. And I'm really fortunate. I have a real stacked cast um, this time for Pundit Provocations. I've got Roy Iro, um, Te Hamama Hohua, and Poitiare Tararo, who bring to life all six of these characters. And uh, it's coming out shortly, uh, and then next week for for Wellington. You want to tell us when and where and how people can, can attend? Of course. I would love to tell you that. That's the most important question. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yes, Punny Provocations debuts in Wellington at Te Oaha from the 6th to the 9th of March. We have four evening shows at 6 p.m. and one matinee at 3.30 p.m. And people can find tickets on the New Zealand Fringe website. And you're also heading back home with the story. Tell us a bit about that. Yes, I'm following our debut season here in Wellington. We travel to Rarotonga to participate and to perform at the Cook Islands' first ever Pride Week in April, um, which is super exciting because this play is written for youth and I, um, for our takatapui whanau out there. So it's really, I feel very privileged to have been invited to participate in Pride this year. Our first ever one in the Cook Islands, it's going to rock. New Zealand's Pacific Peoples and Health Minister says he's ready to take action to help the region after returning from the Pacific mission where he visited Donga, Cook Islands and Samoa. The first 100 days of the new coalition government is on the horizon and many Pacifica in New Zealand who voted for change say they're expecting the cost of living and their health needs to be addressed. There's also conversations since Waitangi Day about how Pacifica can shape the nation going forward, despite the National Party not having a single Pacific representative in the House. Alicia Foon has more. I am a better minister for Pacific peoples for that visit, and I look forward to joining the Deputy Prime Minister and being in similar situations with some of the other Pacific countries that we care for. New Zealand's Pacific Peoples and Health Minister Dr Shane Reti says he's now more prepared to serve Pacifica in New Zealand and across the region. One of the greatest needs is bolstering health staff and upskilling people through further education. 
it is something that I will take on board to see how we can facilitate that, any, any hurdles that we can remove around uh, cross-creditation. Having said that, there was that commitment at the National University of Samoa for $3.5 million for a new Bachelor of Health Science, which talks to building up and supporting those domestic pipelines, those training pipelines. National have no Pacific representatives in the House, whereas the previous Labour government had more than 10 MPs, including a Pacific Deputy Prime Minister. Samoan Fonoti Agnes Lohini is a national candidate and would become the only Pacific MP once a seat becomes available. You know, it was unfortunate. I think it was unfortunate we didn't get any Pacific MPs in this coalition government. You know, that said, we had 11 in the last government. And actually some key areas that I think were very important to me, which is Pacific education, fell drastically. You know, and those other issues that were really key for us as Pacific and, you know, our high needs community, which is cost of living, I mean, it just took a dive. So I think in terms of you've got Pacific representation in the government, but actually for a lot of Pacific people, they didn't actually deliver what they said they were going to deliver. So whilst it's good to have representation, people still want certain things from a government that they should deliver. She also runs National's Pacific Blues, a group aimed at creating future Pacific politicians. She urged Pacific parents to gain governance experience by joining the children's school boards. Most of my time is with our Pacific Blues group, though, because that's the group that I'm really passionate about, is ensuring that our Pacific boys within the party and engaging the party into the community is still strong. Always happy to help people who think that they might want to stand as a candidate one day. National's first Pacific MP, Anai Arthur Anai, says the party has a lot to answer for. National has to look itself very deeply and say, look, whatever we do here, we have a responsibility to make sure that we position a Pacific person with calibre that will get into Parliament and do this. I mean, the insult I had was I was the only Pacific person there. (laughs) And yet they brought another person to look after Pacific issues, which didn't make sense then and still doesn't make sense now. But today I'm quite proud that Shane's there doing a great job because we don't have anybody else. He says despite still supporting the party values, he believes the government must recognise Pacific are big players in New Zealand and are deserving of more opportunities to lead. I know what the problems are and I didn't walk for fun. I left because of reasons that I had enough of it. And until such time they recognise we are equal and as good as anybody else... I won't change my mind because this is the thing that irks me is that some people think we came off a damn banana boat wearing a lava and jandals to work in a factory. Those days are history. Our people in this country have proved their ability to do anything and everything and succeed at it. Just give us the opportunity to prove we can. Increasing the number of female leaders in Pacific governments was the focus of a three-day forum held in Auckland last week. The Pacific Women in Power Forum brought together members of parliaments, ministers, governors and parliamentary staff from 11 countries in the region. Tiana Haxon was at the forum and filed this report. Less than 7% of elected members of parliament across the Pacific are women. The Women in Power Forum brought the 7% together to network and discuss ways to increase this figure. 
Hosted by the UNDP, the forum aims to encourage the region's female leaders to stand strong in tough political environments and inspire the next generation. The UNDP's Tuya Altengaro says the gathering provides a safe space for members to speak up about their collective experiences and challenges. This platform is creating that opportunity to see how we can train and engage and ensure that there is a next generation of women leaders who can participate in the politics, whether it's at the national or subnational levels. Honourable Rhonda Tiaki of Niue was the youngest member in attendance. She wholeheartedly believes that more female representation is needed in Pacific governments. Ms Tiaki says women leaders bring a fresh perspective to the political arena. As women, we think different, we do things differently, and we bring that structure into um, parliaments. But we also have to apply the gender lens in all our work, yeah, just to make sure that everyone is being represented fairly. Bougainville's community minister agrees. The Honourable Theonela Roca says being surrounded by other Pacifica leaders boosted her confidence. She is certain they can all work together to inspire more young women to join politics and change the statistic. Being in the room and sensing all the energy and the drive that the women have, we may be looking forward to bringing a lot more, you know, many female prime ministers and presidents across the Pacific region. And I'm really optimistic about that. Fiji's Linda Tambuya says strong solidarity of Pacific women across the region will make their voices louder. She believes having more women in politics will raise the visibility and viability of women in decision-making spaces. Even though we're small in numbers, we are big in terms of our voice. We are the smallest population in the world. But when women support women and women come together in solidarity, we can make magic and we can really affect change in the world. The three-day forum concluded this afternoon. Attendees left with a stronger sense of connection across the region as they worked together towards a collective goal to inspire more women to become political leaders. Fiji's Women and Children's Minister Linda Tambuya says Pacific Island countries need to strengthen laws on online harassment. Her comment comes as she deals with allegations of a sex and drug scandal between her and a former cabinet minister. She spoke to Tiana Haxton on the sidelines of the Pacific Women in Power Forum in Auckland last week. The women's minister has maintained that the allegations against her of extramarital affairs are untrue after lewd images of her were leaked online. The matter is currently under police investigation. She says the person causing the online harassment lives in Sydney and called on the assistant of Australia's online safety watchdog to have the images removed. If you put up content that is or appears to be the person, then that person needs to take the content down, otherwise they can face prosecution. So that was the process I followed. And I'm grateful to um, the eSafety Commission of Australia for their swift action. Ms. Tamboya has been embroiled in an alleged sex and drug scandal with sacked Education Minister Asiri Randrondro during official travel to Australia last year. She has previously denied the allegations, calling it fake news, while Mr. Randrondro has not commented on the issue. However, she says as a female politician, the situation she finds herself in was not exclusive to her. It's me today, it could be someone else tomorrow. It doesn't have to be a minister or a public figure. But if you have women in Fiji or across the Pacific who are facing this, especially for populations where there are more people outside of the country than in country. 
Ms Tamboya wants stronger policies to prevent online harassment across the region. You get more attacks from people who live overseas, so our women MPs need to reach out to those countries where those people who are attacking them live because their laws are much stronger. But it's also a lesson for us within to strengthen our laws so that we can stand up against online bullying. She says women in politics are more susceptible to online harassment than men. The world is unfair and being a woman in politics, we face a lot of unfairness and injustices. But I think it also makes us so much more determined to stand up and to be heard. Meanwhile, Ms Tambuya is currently the subject of an inquiry by her political party following the sex scandal allegation, the outcome of which has yet to be released. Pacifica children continue to experience some of the highest rates of poverty in New Zealand. Child poverty statistics for the year ending June 2023, released by Statistics New Zealand, show that despite the previous government's push to eliminate poverty, there's been no improvement. Lisha Foon spoke with Chief Children's Commissioner Claire Ackmard. I'm really concerned in this latest data that we see around child poverty rates in Aotearoa, New Zealand, that for the first time since 2018, we're actually seeing poverty rates for children increasing across three of those main measures. And the measure that I'm particularly concerned about is the material hardship measure. So we've seen this um, year in these statistics a jump in the percentage of children who are experiencing material hardship. That means going without six or more of the 17 items that are regarded as essential um, to get by in everyday life. Things like having access to fresh fruit and vegetables, being able to see the doctor, having warm clothes and shoes. Um, And so that rate, we've seen that go up from 10.5% in 2022 to 12.5% in these latest statistics. But for Pacifica children, that rate is even higher, sitting at 28.9% of Pacific children. That's 28.9% of Pacifica children who every day, that's their lived experience living in material hardship. That's completely unacceptable and we must focus attention on that. That is the highest out of any other group. That's correct. That is the highest out of um, all groups of children um, that these statistics are broken down into, yes. The previous government campaigned on the basis of shifting these statistics about creating a better life for children in poverty. Do you believe that uh, they delivered on their promises? And what is your call to the uh, current coalition government? It was a huge and momentous um, success that the last government actually put into place this Um, child poverty reduction framework focuses attention on reducing child poverty rates and we have seen that over the last few years that child poverty rates have been trending downwards but now what we need to see is continued and concerted political effort and will that commits to reducing child poverty year on year. You know, I'm really pleased that this new government, um, during the election period, the National Party anyway, made that commitment to halving child poverty by 2028. We must continue on that track. And what I'm calling on the government now to do is to actually commit to making reducing child poverty in our country a project of national significance. 
because you know in my role I hear from children and young people and including Pacifica children and young people they say to me please let's bring this poverty rate down because it's affecting our lives it's impacting on our dreams and our potential so it's incumbent on the government and all of us to work hard to turn that around. How can we on the ground help and support, I guess, all families that are struggling, but particularly uh, Pacifica children, because statistics are showing that they are worse off. It, it is heartbreaking to see that there's been little to no change. I think a lot of people would agree with that. And I agree with that. Uh, and, you know, my heart goes out to these children who are living in households where very often the reality is that parents, mum and dad, um, caregivers, they're working really hard, but they're often working in work that is paid at a low wage. So we need to continue to build that collective momentum and those calls for a shift to those wages. We need to lift our minimum wage up to a living wage so that households with children can actually get by and not have this burden of stress that sits on them. I also want to pay tribute to the many incredible Pacifica and other community organisations who are out there serving children and families every day, making a difference in their lives. We need that work to keep going, but it is hard work. And then the other thing I would say is we need to maintain that momentum on Pacifica people-led solutions for Pacifica children and families. You know, things like uh, Tamaiti Ole Moana, the Moana Connect 10-year action plan that was published last year. It makes really clear those things that we need to be focusing in on if we are going to address this issue of poverty affecting Pacifica children in our country. And you raise some important work in organisations, groups that are on the ground uh, trying to make a difference. But when you see statistics like this and little to no change or increasing poverty in some of these measures, it, I can only imagine it be quite discouraging for people. How do you speak to these groups when statistics like this come out? It is very discouraging that we are not seeing the traction and the progress that we need to see. What I remind our communities of is the incredible strength that sits within them. We have seen that over these very difficult past few years with the pandemic and we need that to continue but at the same time I'm very clear with our Pacifica communities and with wider communities who are wrapping their support around children and tamariki every day um, as their independent advocate, I am continuing to make those calls for the structural system level changes that we need to see. And right now, when it comes to this issue of addressing child poverty, including for Pacifica children, I'm calling on the government to use this opportunity of these statistics that really focus the mind on the urgency to make wise decisions, to invest in children now, implement evidence-based policy, listen to our communities, to families, to whānau, to children themselves, um, and heed their calls. Let's take action that's going to actually help children, including Pacifica children, to experience their full potential every day and to actually dream those big dreams that they should all be having beyond dreaming simply of things like having enough food on the table in a less stressful home because of that grinding impact of poverty. 
That's Sangatsa Otsemwana. Remember, you can download us for free to your device from Spotify, iHeart or Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. From myself and the RNZ Pacific team, to a fast way forward.